Welcome to The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. On this special episode, I'm thrilled to be sharing an excerpt from the most popular remarkable retail podcast of our third season, in fact, of our entire series, where my podcast partner and best-selling author Steve Dennis and I wrapped up season three with the formidable, irrepressible, and always provocative Scott Galloway. For those who have yet to jump on the big dog train, Scott is professor of marketing at NYU Stern, author of three best-selling books, podcast hosted on Pivot with Kara Swisher and his own Prof G, and the founder of Section 4, where he teaches strategy and brand strategy at Sprints. His new TV show will debut on CNN Plus later this year. In a wide-ranging interview, we get Scott's take on Twitter and the challenges of digital marketing more broadly, the future of work and higher education, what's next for retail, including a bright future for brick and mortar, and his hot take on the prospects for digitally native vertical brands, including why digitally native is a distinction without much of a difference. We also learn who Scott turns to for inspiration, as well as discover our mutual love for the brand formerly known as Restoration Hardware and the word bifurcation. Well, we're very excited to welcome Scott Galloway to the podcast. I think last time Scott, you and I spoke was on my book launch, and I appreciate your support on that. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good. Good to be with you. All right. Well, I, Scott, I feel like there's so much we can we can talk about, so it's hard to choose. But I was wondering, I know you've been pretty active on uh, on Twitter and elsewhere talking about social media. There's so much going on. We've got brands like Lush pulling out. Uh, we finally got, I guess, Jack Dorsey moving on from Twitter. I, I'm just kind of curious where you are on how brands should think about leveraging social media, what, what your view is, what's going on on Twitter next, are you short or long? Just just in general, what's your hot take on the exciting world of social media these days? Well, look, if, if you want sort of outsized returns, typically from a brand or even an individual standpoint, the people who and the organizations that get outsized returns are typically on their marketing or branding efforts or customer acquisition efforts are usually ones that embrace and are really deft with new mediums. So whether it was Trump and Twitter or Elon Musk and Twitter uh, (laughs) or, you know, Kennedy and television, whatever it might be, uh, Nike and television, William Snowman catalogs, I would argue that the last kind of five or seven years, if you were going to find a retailer or a smaller kind of consumer aspirational brand that made tremendous progress they were usually very good at leveraging emerging mediums or really understanding and making a big investment early. And I would argue those medium, you know, that kind of the medium last decade was probably Instagram, whether it's Lululemon or Sephora, you know, when you think of retailers that have sort of punched above their weight class and done really well, uh, there's usually, you know, they usually have kind of overscore, they punch above the weight class on Instagram. And I would argue the next one is, is TikTok. I think TikTok is extraordinary uh, in terms of its adoption, sort of faster zero to a billion than I think any social media platform in history. And distinctive kind of the headline risk coming out of China around ByteDance, I still think that's a huge opportunity for retailers. And then this live video selling that is big in China, that's really incredible. Uh, Conversion rates, you know, in terms of Twitter, which is sort of a, you know, a side hobby for me, I'm kind of semi-obsessed with the company as a user and as a, uh, I've invested a few times. It's one of the few stocks I kind of trade around, I guess. Look, I've, I've said this for a while. I think Twitter does not command the space it occupies. I think a company that this influence and reach should not be trading below its IPO price. Uh, it's underperformed every every social media company, much less you know probably every SaaS or tech company. And I think it's a big opportunity. 
but I don't, I just don't meet with retailers or brands that say, Oh, we need to spend more on Twitter. It just, mm-hmm. you talk about it. Um, but so I think Twitter is, um, remarkably under monetized, uh, in terms of how it impacts retailers though. I'm not sure. I just don't. I don't even think Twitter's really in the conversation for most brands and retailers. I think it's an afterthought. Uh, I'm curious, just for a move off of social media, are there are there any brands or personalities that you think are kind of lurking beneath the surface that you're you're following because they're doing interesting things that haven't quite gotten that that reach or engagement yet, and maybe folks should be looking at for for some ideas. That's a really generous question. I wish I had better answers. So. <laughs> Uh, do you know who Jessica, I think Jessica Yellen, News Not Noise, um, she does this kind of a rundown of the day's news and she tries to kind of call balls and strikes and she does it on Instagram. And I find the format and her voice is so outstanding. I think it's a fantastic news and media property. I really, um, I think they do a great job. I'm biased. I'm an enormous fan of CNN. I get their CNN kind of five things emails in the morning. I really enjoy CNN. Um, I'm watching less CNBC. I don't know. And then, uh, I, I, but I don't have what I'd call people. A lot of times I kind of come up with a better app. People ask me where I get my ideas or influence. And uh, it's kind of, I get a lot of it from Twitter. I think Twitter does a pretty good job of having stuff bubble up. Um, and I'm also really fortunate. I have a group of, of kids or I call them kids, young, young men and women who forward me notes on almost everything I do with interesting articles and data. But I don't I wouldn't say I have like a secret weapon like, oh, follow this guy or gal. There's a bunch of people who are really inspiring. I think Ben Thompson at Stratechery does an amazing job, is incredibly prolific mm-hmm. around technology. Uh, I love Bob Lesvets. Lesvets. He's he's actually a music industry guy, but I just find he's such a clear blue flame thinker. I love the way he talks about stuff. Um, but in terms of retail, you know, Steve, I follow some of your stuff. My you know, as a professor I follow out of Carl at, at a, uh, McGill up, up yeah. north, who I think you know as well, Stephen. I, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. It feels like we're kind of, there aren't a ton of thought leaders given what a big industry it is. Put that on the New Year's resolutions. Figure there that you out. go. Get on it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Scott, we may or may not be at this tail end of the COVID era. It feels like the goalposts keep moving a bit, but we're mm-hmm. kind of making progress. We're almost exactly, if not exactly, a year away or a year out from post corona from crisis to opportunity, your book, as you reflect on the past year, has it changed or modified or what you've observed? Do you have anything to add to your earlier observations? How do you think customers have changed and how are you continuing to think about that? Well, COVID's sort of enduring future will be as an accelerant more than a change engine. If you look at the majority of real changes, it's been, it's just taken existing trends and accelerated them a decade or, or dramatically increased the slope of that trajectory. So I just got off uh, my podcast at Pivot. We were interviewing two people about remote work. And I think the office industrial complex is just, will never be the same. I don't, I think we've gotten really good at figuring out a way to rent our human capital to organizations remotely. And we start at it that this notion that, oh, it must be a reduction in productivity. I think when you take the 10 hours a week of commuting, that a lot of people endure and the amount of time you spend getting ready and the cost to put you in this amalgam of steel, glass, and asbestos known as an office. You just think there's just so much additional resources and productivity that we start from, even if you're less productive, not bumping off of people. So I think the there's a permanent destruction. Some things are permanently altered. I think the shift to remote work is a structural shift, not a cyclical one. I think malls, movie theaters were all weakening. 
there is a consolidation in retail, and that is it, once the you know once the rains return and there's a culling of the herd, there's more foliage for the surviving elephants, and you're seeing a dramatic reshaping of the retail landscape where it's very difficult for even smaller franchisees of big brands to survive. There's consolidation because you got to be able to make the requisite tech investments. You got to make the requisite changes in format and supply chain. I'm on the board of Panera and it just strikes me how much where our focus has been is, all right, you think of a traditional cafe, but how do we figure out a way to configure it such that it's easy to pick up and never get out of your car or come into the, you know, buy online, pick up and store or smaller footprint or temporary stores in high density areas. It's just all around supply chain and reconfiguration of the supply chain and technology. Over 50% of our orders now are digital. And when you think about it, the majority of restaurants just can't make those sorts of investments. They just don't have, they don't have the skills, they don't have the capital. So I think you're going to see, and it's not a, you know, it's not a good thing. I think you're going to see further consolidation. But retail, the last twenty years, has generally speaking been just a really shitty place to work or invest, unless you work for Amazon. And we have these well publicized examples of the few winners, whether it's Restoration Hardware or Lululemon. But generally speaking, if you took Amazon out of every ETF that tracks retail stocks, it's just been a terrible place to work or invest because we have one retailer that's now worth more than probably all of, you know, the majority of retail in Europe combined, um, and that's the behemoth out of Seattle. So I wonder, though, if there's an opportunity coming out of this. I'm just trying to relate it to retail, and that yeah. is... I was on the board of Urban Outfitters. Now I'm on the board, as I mentioned, of Panera. I think a lot about retail. I've kind of cursed to it. I enjoy it. Uh, I th- I think it's a tremendous opportunity to open stores because for the first time in probably three decades, power or leverage has swung back from the landlord to the tenant. Mm-hmm. And for the first time I'm seeing, uh, first time in my history, uh, career in retail, I'm seeing percentage of revenue deals from tier A tenants. So the, who never would have previously even considered that type of arrangement. And the thing about retail that's so dangerous as it relates to leases is that if you screw up and you pick the wrong location, it's a 10-year weeping sore of cash. <laughs> and because landlords had so much leverage, like, no, you got to sign up for 10 years. You got to enter into a contract that says you'll pay us this much every month for 10 years. And then you find it doesn't work after three months. You're like, okay, we've got nine and three quarters years of, of this liability. Right. And so percentage of revenues is huge um, swing back and leverage to uh, the tenant. So what I see is I, I see opportunity in bricks. I mean, you have to have, you have to be multi-channel. It's difficult to get above a certain revenue level without offering you know, access to multiple channels. But in terms of return on investment, return on invested capital, Google and Facebook have such extraordinary control over the digital ecosystem that they slowly but surely raised rents. I mean, let's talk about Amazon. In 2014, the percentage of revenue that they secured from their retailers on their third-party platform was 19%. So to pay for their fulfillment, to pay for the Amazon Media Group, they got about, you had to pay Amazon about 19% of, uh, 19 cents on every dollar you got on their platform. Uh, It's now 34%. So the consolidation across digital marketing and Amazon in terms of e-commerce has just meant those three players every year have raised their rents. And so I think what you might have is when you have a de- decline in the, the rental power or the rents of bricks and mortar and an increase in the rents on digital, 
all of a sudden bricks and mortar begin to look economically viable again or, or economically attractive. So I would argue that if you're in a position to play offense, your return on the invested dollar right now is actually maybe greater in opening uh, bricks. It's, it's probably one of the ironies of the COVID era is there's a lot of movement and opportunity in physical retail where your neighborhood, Soho, for example, has got lots mm-hmm. of space where that used to be such a premium unattainable for Everything's a empty. lot of brands. Everything's right? empty. One of my Great. dreams, Scott, is to have you and Mark Andreessen in like a cage match, you know, where you, <laughs> <laughs> so it turn, turns out that guy'd win. He's big and he strikes me as mean. He doesn't do a lot of media. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to comment on that. You know, I, so one question you talked about how, how poor the returns have been in, in retail in general. Maybe this is as good a time as any to talk about some of these digitally, digital native brands and which have perhaps staying power. Obviously, many of them are moving into physical retail very aggressively, which I certainly find pretty, pretty ironic. And what's your take on how many of these digital brands really, digitally native brands really have staying power and what people should be paying attention to as we get more IPOs, more earnings reports? Well, it's sort of, I don't know, what's what's old is new again, and that is retail. I mean, channel strategy and supply chain are super important. And then, obviously, merchandising and voice. And when I think of some of the most successful retailers over the last decade, they generally have a few things in common. They're vertically integrated. They not only have, they've not only forward integrated into stores, whether it's Apple or, you know, I look at what Restoration Hardware's done with their kind of their grand palazzos or whatever they call their stores, which I think are just incredibly visionary. You want to be vertical. You want to control the product. You want to control the distribution to try and maintain margin power. And it's very difficult to point to any retailer that's, I mean, kind of what multi-brand retailer has really killed it. Uh, maybe Home Depot, you know, Walmart's just done okay, I guess. But the guys that have outsized returns, you know, you talked about digitally native brands. You know, Warby Parker's done really well, but Warby Parker's vertical, a proprietary. I think merchandise value proposition. You know, they've taken what are used to be three and five hundred dollar glasses and a very fat and happy incumbent with Luxottica, and their stores are wonderful. They started online, but I would argue that the point of differentiation is actually their bricks now, which I think are really inspiring. Uh, I look at Allbirds. I think they're going to be challenged. I don't think that their product, I guess their product's differentiated. Their in-store experience is okay, but I wonder if it's sort of too fashionable. And I look at their customer acquisition costs and the way they, they've had some slights of hand and the way they report their numbers. I think they're going to fall under pressure. You know, and then there's other, I wouldn't call them a retailer, but I think about, I'm just thinking about recent IPOs. On Running had an enormously successful IPO, mm-hmm. but I think that brand is highly differentiated. Uh, so it's, but it, when you talk about, you know, to say that you're kind of digitally native, it's like saying you're electricity native and that is okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's everybody's digital now. William Sonoma does a great job online. Um, right. and they, their background is in database driven kind of, I don't know, catalogs and merchandising. So they're just very good at it. It's well, uh, to be successful, are you great at digital or great at bricks? And the answer is yes. Right. There's just going to be very few retailers that ever get above a certain watermark in terms of uh, revenues and or margins unless they do a really good job of all of them. I look at Nike. Nike, you know, I've consulted to Nike and Samsung for the last decade. And I say the same thing to them every year. You got to go vertical. You got to have a great percentage of your sales controlled in a, in a brand aspirational environment. Nike listened. Samsung did not. 
And Nike, I think, is about a third of their revenues, maybe more. It'll probably be half within five or seven years. They're done through controlled channels, either their own stores or their own website. And I think that's a reason why Nike, which should have been ground zero for destruction, when you think about a brand that should be susceptible to the decline in the advertising industrial complex and broadcast media, you would think, oh, well, Nike won't do well. Mm. Nike's done really well. They've absolutely skated to where the puck was headed and invested more in vertical, whereas I would argue Samsung is going to have difficult difficult time supporting its margins when they have a guy named Roy from Verizon, you know, pushing their product. It's just <laughs> so look, I, long-winded way of saying verticalization, uh, multi-channel. You know, I don't I don't think I'm saying anything you guys um, don't get or understand. There's been some recent retail IPOs. I think people always try and position retail as tact such that they get a bigger multiple. Um, but it kind of is the same thing, right? It's supply chain. It's great merchandising, um, bracing new mediums. Uh, but like I think on running, which is the most successful of them, I think in terms of IPO, they've just done a great job with product and merchandising and voice. So that's not really changing. I mean, one of the most successful retailers of the last decade, Restoration Hardware, you know, the CEO there is not a Luddite. You know, he gets, you know, he appreciates mm-hmm. technology, but he's a merchant. And I just walk into those stores and I look around and I'm just fucking inspired. I want to buy everything and I want to stay there for lunch. And it's just, you just think, wow, yeah. this wasn't, and it's not, I mean, technology is important. I, I, I don't know what's going behind the scenes in terms of supply chain, but it feels like we're bifurcating into Amazon and then inspiring. You know, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. if it's multi-brand and if it's getting to me with getting something to me within 48 hours and convenience and selection, mm-hmm. Amazon kind of 50 cents on the dollar digitally. Efficiency or experience, right? I mean, it's a bifurcation. It's, and I think, I think we owe Steve now a couple of nickels because uh, that is bifurcation. Yeah, Thank you. We get a small fee every time somebody says bifurcation. Is that your term? Yeah, <laughs> or an angel gets your experience? Or I don't know. Something. Yeah, that makes sense. Scott, quick last question. I know, I know we're uh, tight on time. Your, your strategy sprints have been getting rave reviews. I know Carl Boutet, who you mentioned, uh, did that. Yeah. I recommended it to one of my clients. Is, is that the future of business education beyond, you know, notwithstanding the fact you're an NYC Stern prof? How do you see the future of education? And, and will employers acknowledge and start to recognize that as, as what should I say, legitimate versus traditional kind of university college choices and creds? Uh, well, thanks. That's a generous question. So my online ed startup, Section 4, we're basically trying to take elite business school classes and make them more accessible, you know, $700 or, or uh, instead of 7000 and two or three weeks instead of 12 weeks, no admissions process. And we're a mission-driven organization. If you can't afford to take a course and you want to, we have this very rigorous scholarship process where you send us an email saying you can't afford it and we mm-hmm. let you take it. There's going to be an unbundling of universities. They have created artificial scarcity by creating ridiculously, you know, this rejectionist culture where they take pride in turning away 90% of their applicants. We have priced ourselves out of the, not out of the market, but I believe one of the greatest destructions and prosperity across the middle class has been the inflation over the, the unrelenting inflation over the last 40 years of higher education. Uh, I think there's just a ton of opportunity, whether it's Google certificates or what we're doing at Section 4 or edX or 2U. These companies are doing great work. And I think it's going to place a lot of the schools under pressure. The elite schools will be fine because they can sort of arbitrage their degrees. So they partner with companies and they say, hey, get a degree to be a chief digital officer and you can put it on LinkedIn and we'll charge you $25,000. And there's a large market 
it's 90 points of gross margin. They get 40 points to the online company who's better at acquiring people online. But they're basically kind of arbitraging or milking the brand equity of their great brands. I think there's a ton of opportunity, and we're already seeing it. More money was raised for ed tech startups in the last quarter than in all of 2020, and 2020 was a record year. So you're going to see huge pressure, not placed on so much the elite schools, but the second-tier schools that were charging an elite price because we're a corrupt cartel. We raise prices in lockstep. And you're going to see, you know, the mother of all chins uh, is uh, waiting for fists of stone is higher ed, where we have raised tuition 1,400% in the last 30 years. And, you know, in higher ed, generally speaking, as administrators and faculty, we ask ourselves the same question every day. How do we increase our compensation while reducing our accountability? And we've managed to do that with this rejectionist culture where we think we're Birkenbags, not, not, not public servants. It's very unhealthy for society. And cloak ourselves in nobility and self-aggrandizement and arrogance that results in a lack of access to, to education where the elite schools, which are still very powerful... Uh, are kind of enforcers of the caste system. And we we bring in two cohorts, the children of rich kids. You're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you're from a top 1% income earning household. 34 of the top 100 schools have more people in the top 1% than the bottom 60. And then the second cohort is what I affectionately refer to as the freakishly remarkable. And if by the time you're 17, you're captain of your lacrosse team and have built wells in Africa and have a patent on a vaccine, congratulations, welcome to Harvard. But I can, I can prove to each of us mathematically that 99% of our children are not in the top 1%. And so Wait, I can think, you go over that again? You had me and then you lost me. Well, I, my point uh, – oh, you're being funny. Um, the as, a Harvard, as a Harvard-educated – Trying, trying to be – yeah, as a Harvard-educated. There you go. <laughs> like, look, I, I think this is a big deal. I, I, I'm – I, uh, this is a kind of a personal thing for me. And when I applied to UCLA, the admissions rate was 74%. Now it's 12%. So the reason I'm here speaking to you guys is because uh, higher ed used to be seen as a chance to turn unremarkable people and give them unremarkable opportunities. Now it's how do we identify the rich or the freakishly remarkable and turn them into billionaires. So yeah. I, I, I hope that, you know, couldn't happen to a nicer group of people. I hope that uh, higher ed, its current institution, is kicked in the nuts over and over for the next 10 years at the hands of startups. And also, some universities, I'm being a bit reductive here, some universities, including the University of California, have not lost the script. They've committed to expanding their freshman seats by 20,000 students over the next decade. Um, so ASU is doing good work. Purdue refuses to re- raise their tuition. There are some, there is some real innovation, but I'd like to see uh, what I'd call the, the gale force winds of disruption howl like crazy in the world of higher ed. I couldn't agree more, and it's one of the things I really, really appreciate. Uh, not only all the provocative things you think you talk about in retail and consumerism, but but I, I really appreciate the social consciousness that comes through. So if people are not checking out your podcast and your newsletter and all the things that section four are doing. They'll definitely do that. We'll put links in the show notes. Is there anything, Scott, anything new and exciting coming up for 2022 that you want to share that maybe isn't out there quite yet? Um, I'm writing another book called America and a hundred charts. And I'm trying to find what I think are the the hundred most interesting charts that kind of depict what America is and where it's headed. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I got my show on CNN Plus starting in March. Um, yeah, so I got a lot, a lot going on. Um, and a new doggo. How's the dog? That's right, the Great Dane. 
The Dane, she's great. It's yeah, a joy. It's, it's, it's we have the little one, gangster, and we have the big one. Um, and I, it sounds obvious, but I didn't realize how big this great Dane would get. <laughs> um, how fast, how big it would get. But yeah, it's yeah. a joy. Do you guys have dogs? Yeah, I, I got a a Rottweiler German Shepherd uh, combo, which is oh. um, basically smarter than I am. Uh, yeah. with lots with way more energy so yeah it's a it's a blast it's a blast yeah. we're on a similar journey i got the dog about the same same time you did i think i need to get a dog my my uh my wife got the dog in the divorce so i got a little work to do there you know it really is um i'm fascinated i'm super into dog i'm just fascinated about the relationship between humans and beasts and i just it's one of the most maybe this is a negative statement on my life but it's one of the most rewarding things in my life i just absolutely love having uh, having dogs. I think it's hugely rewarding. We'll wrap it up now. Scott, I know you're obviously a super busy guy doing a lot of interesting things. Thanks thanks so much for making the time to spend a few minutes with us and hope you have a good holiday season and we'll look forward to everything you're doing next year. Oh, uh, Michael and Steve, thanks so much and congrats on the pod. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of The Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and click and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically twice a week. And check out my other retail industry media properties, The Remarkable Retail Podcast, Conversations with Commerce Next Podcast, and The Food Professor Podcast with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my all-new YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company and Maven Media. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone.